Our scripture is taken from 1 Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 9. And I had the, uh, based on the story series, it was either to preach on Bathsheba or preach on the temple. And uh, while the the story of David and Bathsheba is is always a fun one for preachers to preach on, I I have yet to preach a a sermon on the temple. And so uh, I was excited to dive in here. So we're going to be looking at the, the Old Testament plans for the temple. And I think you'll be quite amazed at its relevancy for our, our, our life today. Even this passage about the building of a temple that no longer exists. So let's look at First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 1 through 9. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because... This palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the, temp- the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and a hundred thousand talents of iron. Any who had precious, precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. This is God's word. I want to start by asking you a, a couple questions. First, what is the largest purchase you have ever made in all of your life? What's the largest pur- purchase? Maybe it was a house or a car if you're not old enough. Um, maybe, may, you know, maybe it was a computer or your college diploma. What's the largest purchase you ever made? Tell someone you sit in, sit, sitting next to real quickly, what was the largest purchase you ever made? Got a lot of houses How about in the last month? Now, you don't have to tell your neighbor this, okay? What's the largest purchase you made? This might be a little bit more personal. Um, in the last month, maybe it was your rent or your mortgage payment or your tuition bill. What was the largest purchase you made in the last month? Last financial question. Forget the house payment, tuition, grocery bill payment. What about extra spending? For the area, what area, what category of your budget Did most of your extra spending come in this last month? Was it in uh, technology? Was it in clothes or makeup, eating out? 
For me, it was hair care. <laughs> I want to get you thinking about this because our passage this evening is simply a tabulation of all the money in the f- in, or the resources in the form of precious metals that David and the leaders of Israel shelled out to build the first ever temple for God. And I want to start by breaking down some of this monet- uh, these, um, these, these donations, these gifts, in, in terms of today's market. And so um, I, I spent some time looking at calculators and archaeological uh, evidence and, and uh, some, some, uh, some stock reports of today's gold prices. And uh, let's start with verse, with, with verse 4. Let's look at how much David spent. Verse 4 said, says that over and above everything I've provided for this holy, holy, for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold. And the gold of Ophir, um, scholars think, it was just a high-quality gold, and that's why they mentioned it. And, and, and it was gifts of tribute that was given every three years. And so um, 3,000 talents of gold if you uh, convert that to pounds and then ounces, and then from ounces to troy ounces, and then times it by about 1,600 bucks per troy ounce, you get roughly $5 billion worth of gold, okay? It's 110 tons of gold, about $5 billion worth of gold in today's market. 3,000 talents of refined silver, again, convert it to uh, tons, 260 tons, to pounds, to ounces, to troy ounces, you get $247 million in today's market. Then David goes to the whole assembly, to the leaders, the officers, and he says, and this is the important part of verse 5, now who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Now, what does consecrate mean? We'll look at this a little bit later, but it means to set apart, to reserve for God's purposes. Verse 6 tells us how much David's officers and the leaders of Israel kicked into the temple project. It says, um, they gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold. Now, 5,000 talents is about 190 tons of gold. And we won't even fuss with the derricks. That's only about 195 pounds. So we'll just... Leave that. 190 tons of gold is about $9 billion worth in today's gold market. Then they gave 10,000 talents of silver. That's about $356 million in today's market. Forget the 675 tons of bronze and the almost 4,000 tons of iron for a moment here, because that's just not worth as much as silver or gold. With just the gold and silver donated to the temple, David and the leaders of the people of Israel together gave $14.6 billion worth of gold and silver in today's market. Guess how much the Seer, well, the Willis Tower cost to build? Anyone know? $160 million. So we could... If we took the gold and silver that was donated to the temple and converted it to to today's currency, we could build 91 Sears Towers for the price of one temple. Let's take a quick peek, a quick visual peek at what scholars think the end result was. Now, I don't know if you can see this very well, but 
the, um, th- that's the temple. And uh, earlier in the, uh, the morning service, Reverend Chernigan talked about the, the uh, temple courts. And that's where the, uh, the basins are and the big altar is. And uh, that's where the, the, uh, the, the people could assemble. But the temple itself is what you see in gold. And it really wasn't that big of a building. It was 90 feet long by 30 feet wide by 45 feet high. But look at it. It's gleaming. And the, the word s- says that first they built a stone structure. And then inside the walls, they covered the, the walls with, with wood. And so that there was no stone showing at all. There was wood on the floors, the walls, the ceilings. And then the, uh, it, it says they overlaid the wood with gold. So I was thinking earlier, what are you going to do with 300 tons of gold? <laughs> How about overlay the entire inside of the sanctuary with gold? Not only that, they had solid gold, 10 solid gold. You can't really see them this, um, up here, but there's 10, 10 uh, gold lampstands. There's... There's, there's bowls, there's utensils, all made of gold. And way in the back, see there's a back room there? That's the Holy of Holies, okay? That's the, the place where the, only the high priest could go once a year. And that room was a cube. It was 30 by 30 by 30. And in that, in that cube, in that Holy of Holies, is where they house the Ark of the Covenant. And it... Uh, Next to it, really guarding it in a way, were two cherubim, two gold angels, two golden statues of cherubim that were 15 feet high and 15, their wingspan was 15 feet wide. Now, the, the room was 30 feet, so you had these two cherubim with their, their wings arching and they were t- pretty much touching the wall and then touching each other and down in the middle you had the Ark of the Covenant. It's really quite amazing. And this passage finishes up with verse 9, saying the people rejoiced at the willingness, at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Why was such a huge amount of resources and energy and effort and time? It... The Bible tells us it, 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 it took about seven years to build Solomon's temple. Uh, King David didn't, it didn't, the construction didn't start under David, just the plans and the resources. And then he gave the, the project to his son. It took about seven years to complete. What, why such a huge amount of resources, metal, time devoted to the temple? Well, you might say, Pastor Laird, uh, that's a no-brainer. Because this is the place where God's presence could be encountered. It's God's temple. And yet it was an access point, if you will, for the very creator of the universe. When God set up some guidelines for worship, he gave implicit instructions to build the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments would be kept. And God said, I will manifest my presence on the mercy seat on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, you can read about this. God instructs the Israelites to build a tabernacle, sort of a portable temple. In fact, the temple is modeled exactly after the tabernacle. Um, The very first thing God instructs them to build is the Ark of the Covenant, where the tablets of the law will be placed. And on the cover of the Ark, in pure gold, God instructs them to build this mercy seat, or place of atonement. And... um, 
on the cover two large statues of cherubim, angels. This will be the focal point for the inner tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest will sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And, God will, and, it, and it will be a symbol for the atonement of God's forgiveness of the people of Israel. Now, the temple that we read about is going to be a permanent resting place for the Ark of the Covenant. The portable temple is no longer needed because they have arrived. They're in the promised land. They, they arrived at their physical destination. The temple is the place where they will seek out and worship God. It's where they'll interact with God, where they will experience the extraordinary gift of God's presence. As verse 1 says, the task is great because this structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. That's why they went through all this hassle. That's why they acquired so much gold and silver and bronze and iron. If you were going to build a structure where God would show up in, wouldn't you want to go all out too? And so they do, and it's amazing. But here's the bigger question, and I'm sure you're, you're, you might be wondering this. How does this affect my life? Well, I want to give you a short temple history and show you how incredibly relevant this passage is for you and I. In this temple that would be built by Solomon, God was sought out and worshipped for many years. But eventually, the Israelites began to drift away. And over time, they began to do whatever they please and stopped following God's rules, God's guidelines, God, God's laws. And so the temple, in a way, became just another building. Because the worship, the sacrifices, the offerings taken in and around it were insincere. They were meaningless. There was no devotion, no heart behind the actions. And as the Israelites abandoned God, God's blessing and God's presence was no longer felt. And slowly the Israelites lost power and control. Neighboring nations would send armies and, and, and raid the land. They, um, an army came and robbed the temple of all its gold and silver and all its valuable possessions. And eventually the temple itself is destroyed along with much of Jerusalem, the city of David. Then over the centuries, with the help of many people, and you can read about this in the Old, Old Testament, with the help of many people, including people like King Herod, the bad guy in the New Testament, um, the temple is rebuilt, but nothing like its original splendor. It's not even a shadow of its former glory. The overlaid gold is absent. The huge doors are gone. In fact, it, it, in, in that picture, um, there was a big, large, huge wooden doors that were folding doors, and I don't know if you could see it up there, that separated the, the nave, the general part of the temple, from the, the uh, Holy of Holies. And uh, they were big wooden doors that, that, um, that folded up that were covered in gold. They didn't have that in, in the new temple. Instead, they had a curtain, a big, thick curtain. But a curtain is nothing compared to wood um, overlaid with gold. And so the new temple looked nothing like the old temple. And God's presence is not there like it used to be. Pastor Greg talked about how on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus drove the money changers and vendors from their temple courts, recalling the, uh, the Psalms that... God's house will be a house of prayer for the nations. 
Well, I want, to, um, I want you to listen to, to this description of Jesus cha- driving out the money changers from John chapter 2. Starting in verse 13, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered this, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to rebuild this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he was spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was referring to himself as the new temple. Not much is said about this, but it's a pretty remarkable statement and pretty theologically bold statement. Jesus is saying, I am the new temple. And if you stop and consider this, you'll remember a couple facts of Jesus' life that help back this up. Let me read to you a a, a quick bit from Matthew chapter 1. Joseph is about to divorce Mary because he finds her pregnant and they're not yet married. And the angel intervenes. And in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20, it reads this. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in this passage, the angel is pointing out to Jesus, to Joseph, Jesus uh, has two purposes. First, he, he, he'll be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the second, he'll be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now, these are the two reasons for the temple. God's presence with them in the Holy of Holies. That's why they built the temple, because God would be with them in that location. The Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. The angel says that Jesus is going to be Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. As John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Second, the temple contained the system and objects for offering atonement. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. The high priest that year would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the people's sin. Just, just about five days later, Jesus would show this temple function. Jesus would 
be the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. It would put an end to sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world would give his life as a sacrifice on that Passover. And do you remember what temple-related event happens when Jesus does this, when Jesus is crucified on Good Friday? The curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew 27, 50 and 51, I think we have it up here, says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, was exposed. Huge significance. Now, there is nothing barring folks' access to the presence of God. Colossians 1, 27 speaks about this phenomenon. Colossians 1, 27 says this, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When the curtain rent in two, it was a symbol that The temple is no longer needed. The Holy of Holies is no longer needed because Christ, the temple, is now with us. And if you confess with your mouth, if you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, then Christ dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. This is a huge thing. Christ dwells in you. Christ dwells in me through the Holy Spirit. Let me break the tension here. Say to the person next to you, Christ dwells in you. Now what does that mean? That means that you are now the temple of God. You are now the temple of God. You have both God's presence and God's atoning sacrifice residing in you through Christ. Don't take my word for it. Look at some of these verses. We have 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? The next one, 1 Corinthians 16.19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and following. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, in other words. Christ resides in us through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we You and I are God's temple. God's presence is within us. So how then shall we live? There's two application verses found in here, verse 1 and verse 5. And these two verses help us to understand two different principles for stewarding God's temple within us. And I want to take them in reverse order. Let's look at verse 5 first. 
Verse 5, the second part of verse 5 says this. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? That's, that's a principle right in there. David's asking the question, who's going to consecrate themselves? What does it mean to consecrate? Well, we said to set apart or to reserve for God's purposes. I want to break it down in more simpler street terms. In simple street terms, consecrate means just because we can doesn't mean we should. Okay? Just because we can doesn't mean we should. We have the Spirit of God in us. So let's not only be mindful of this fact, but let's not hinder or quench the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Just because we can do it, or think it, or experience it, doesn't mean we should. We should be asking, does this action, does this thing, does this thought, does this decision help or hurt the Holy Spirit's residence in us? The Bible says, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's, that's a concrete thing. But how do we work that out in everyday life? Well, as a pastor with an Irish background, I had to come up with principles. And so I have this policy of one and done, and, uh, or on a rare special occasion, it's two and through. But I, will, I have made that principle because I want to foster the Holy Spirit in my temple and not thwart the Holy Spirit in my temple. Some people may need an absolute no policy when it comes to alcohol, or a different rule of thumb. The point is to ask, what is conducive to the Spirit's work, and what is a hindrance to the Spirit's work? What do you watch? What do you eat? What do you do with your friends that is conducive to the Holy Spirit or harmful to the Holy Spirit in you. It affects all areas of life, how you spend your money, your vacations, etc. It covers grudges you hold, stinginess, selfishness, apathy. How can the Holy Spirit work in you if you are harboring unforgiveness, if you're selfish and tight-fisted? David says, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord? It's a good question for us. It's an all-of-life deal. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. You need to ask yourself, does this activity, thought, decision, experience help or hinder the Holy Spirit in me? How you surf the web, etc., etc., the other principle, the last principle, comes from verse 1, and it's sort of the opposite principle. It's not, it's, it's, it's looking proactively. Verse 1 says, David is telling the people, the task is great because this structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. And then David and the people give incredible amounts of resource, resources to build the temple. It's a great principle for us. The task is great, not for the faint-hearted, what will we do proactively? What resources, time, energy, thoughts will we give to help build the temple of the Holy Spirit within us? If we were to measure our prayer life, would we score high? 
Do we give God regular access to our mind, our emotions, to everything going on in our life and in our heart prayerfully? Do we prayerfully, prayerfully ask God to weigh in on our relationships and on our struggles we may have at home or in our neighborhood or in our work? Do we meditate on Scripture? Do we let Scripture come alive for us and, be a pl- and let the Holy Spirit apply it to our lives? Do we ever fast? Do we ever deny our flesh in a period of time and ask God to help us realize our dependence on Him or our lack of dependence on Him? Do we allow for time for God to speak to us? If we're always doing all the talking, we'll, we, we won't be able to hear what God wants to say and how God wants to work in us. In verse 2, David says, With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God. Wouldn't that be a great thing for us to be able to say? With all my resources, I'm providing for the temple of God, how I use my time and my relationships, how I unplug from my email and my voicemail to hear from God. As we head towards Lent, I want to challenge myself and you. Are we doing all we can to steward the extraordinary gift of God's presence within us?